Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty. I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Christopher Prunty. On today's episode, we have an extra special guest, the hosts of the Under Common Taste podcast, Ian and James. Uh, gentlemen, so glad to have you on. Well, thanks for having us. We're glad yes, to be you. here. We're very excited to be here, yes. Yeah. So uh, for those of us who might not know what Undercommon Taste is, or if you want to just chill your heart out, please tell us everything about it and yourselves. All right. Um, well, Undercommon Taste is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Um, our original tagline is where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. <laughs> and most of our stuff is focused on 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons because that's where the audience is. Uh, but we do a lot of mechanical, uh, system agnostic uh, advice and topics. Uh, things like how to create compelling NPCs, uh, how to how to build a realistic town in a tabletop role playing game. Uh, things like that. Things that can be brought in whole cloth or piecemeal into someone else's game, right. and and advice to help people turn their big nebulous abstract ideas into concrete game mechanics. Right. One of the things we really wanted to try to focus on with our homebrew, like I said, particularly focusing on the mechanics, is it's really easy to come up with a great character idea or a great concept that might work. And then when you get there and you put it on the table, you notice that it's either way overpowered or way underpowered, or for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. And so we go through... And we try to measure our builds and our concepts with what's already out there, kind of get an idea of a range of what something should be and kind of give some guidelines and some guide rails for you to, to build your own characters as well. Um, we're trying to help people get more ideas of trying to be able to create their own items as well as just what we put out um, and maybe get more people to the table, more people, you know, maybe try to help them uh, be a little braver to DM or try some new things out because a lot of people kind of get stuck in that little rut that they run the same, same two or three things every time. Yeah. I think uh, one of the more recent episodes that I noticed you guys had was how to, how to create or uh, modify monsters. And that is one of the things that brought me into the hobby in and of itself was, uh, was the monster manual. That was actually the first D and D book. It was 3.0 monster manual. And that in and of itself, I had no idea how the rules worked. I had no idea anything else about the game, but the monster manual in and of itself brought me in. And the idea that I could create my own, that little index in the back, the appendix in the back was really what brought me into the hobby and what got me excited, really excited about, um, you know, fantasy and everything like that. Yeah, we, uh, we've gone through and in a couple of episodes uh, where we have taken some of the third edition monsters uh specifically we've done the ragamuffin and the spellweaver which are both really awesome monsters that james and i both absolutely love and tried to port them into fifth edition so that we could use them in fifth edition but also using them as a framework plus the the rules that are laid out in the back of the dmg for creating a monster calculating challenge rating doing all of those things and and making something step by step that someone could follow along with as a guideline so that you know you don't just stare at this wall of text and say okay it says all of these things now what because there are there are some aspects of it that are kind of confusing if you're not if you don't have an example to go off of um, specifically calculating the challenge rating it took us probably 15 20 minutes talking about it and butting our heads together to actually figure out, okay, what exactly are they talking about whenever we're calculating a challenge rating? Um, because, you know, challenge rating, it's, it's more of a guideline than anything else, but it is something both that helps determine uh, when you can expose your party to this monster and how much experience the party is going to get for defeating this monster so you don't want to shortchange your party, but you also don't want to uh, overwhelm them with something that you just thought was a cool idea. 
Absolutely. Oh yeah. CR has been like such a thing uh, ever since it came out. Like they, that was really where like the four adventuring or the four combat encounters per day thing kind of came up. And by the way, your choice of the ragamuffin is an excellent one because I have very, very fond memories of the ragamuffin from back in 3.5 days. Uh, I think it was Dungeon Magazine that came out with an adventure that pretty heavily featured a ragamuffin or several, actually. And I just fell in love with that monster around that time. I thought it was such an interesting design choice. Yeah, the ragamuffin's a a really fun monster. And you had brought up earlier how the the old monster manual that got you into the hobby and game. And I think that's, that's a lot of our introductions. I think, as you know, that book and it's got the, just, it has some fantabulous art and a lot of it comes straight from the eighties and early Mm nineties. Those old comics, they were really great. Uh, My introduction to the game, like I said, on our podcast forever ago was I was in elementary school and there was some guys playing, uh, I'm sure it was second edition, but they had the maps out or the little, like the little square maps out and they had the lists and the charts and the tables for everything. And I just found the the intricacy of the game absolutely fa- fascinating. And then, of course, you know, the monster manual and these big, scary monsters that, that could be, you know, nebulous or definitely evil or not things. Then it was kind of that forbidden thing. Oh, I shouldn't have this, but I did. So it was one of those things that kind of like drew me in that way as well. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of pretty close to how I got involved with, with an interest in the game as well. Mm. All right. Well, we're not just here to talk about monster manuals and we're not just here to talk about how we got into the hobby or your podcast. This is our podcast. God damn it. And from what I understand, you brought a premise for us today that we're going to build not a world, but a region around. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's pretty much what we're doing. Yeah. All right. So uh, why don't you gentlemen go ahead and introduce the premise and then give us one of your tenets for the premise. All right, so the the premise for this particular uh, region is an object which has created a safe haven in an otherwise inhospitable land. All right, that is a brilliant, interesting, fascinating topic. Uh, I know that we, uh, a little inside baseball, we've already talked about the possibilities here, but what is uh, one of the tenets that you decided to go with? James, do you want to lead off on this one or do you want me to? I'll let you lead off and I'll pick up from there. Okay. Um, so the, uh, the tenant that I want to bring is that the object itself is uh, technology and not magic, mm. but, but that it's so old that it has become a divine object. So we're talking Numenera, like 10,000 million years into the future type thing where there's that line that separates between magic and technology. I love that. Also known as the dying earth genre. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very Wait, much. Is so. that what the genre is called? Yes. Oh, to Daniel. Oh, it is, that is yeah. a, oh, okay. That is an old, old, <laughs> it is a, for old sci-fi. I love it. Yeah. It's a li- yeah. legitimate literary uh, genre. <laughs> so. Look, Daniel, I'm just going to poke the bear whenever I can, okay? <laughs> you seem like you're trying to convince yourself as well as me. Uh, I know. It does. It sounds a little desperate, right? I'm just saying. I have the Dying Earth books on my shelf. I need no convincing. <laughs> um, all right. So, so we've got this item. We don't know what it does yet, but I'm already fascinated. But that it is an ancient technology that has now been... Now, you said specifically divine. I like that idea as well, that it's not just a magical item, but a divine one. Uh, it's, it's it's perceived as divine. Ah, it doesn't okay, necessarily good. have to be divine. It It's one of those things where they've been so far separated from its origins and its original intended purpose that they've forgotten what the actual original intended purpose of this object was. And they just attribute it to being a divine gift of some sort. Hmm. Okay. And uh, James, did you have a follow-up tenet for that? Yes, I did. Since since this since this object, whatever it may be, creates basically an oasis of some sort in an otherwise inhospitable area, people think it's divine. So the surrounding area, this becomes basically a pilgrimage site for people. One, like I said, mm. it's an oasis for for an inhospitable whatever you know. So it's it's a safer place to go to. But then it's also everyone wants to come and see 
the source of this, whatever it is that, that creates it, be it magic, be it technology, however they want to encompass that. But something like Mecca or the Wailing Wall or, I don't know, maybe, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if you're into that kind of thing or the <laughs> Super Bowl. But it's yeah. something that draws people to it just so they can say they were near it. So it's it's not just an item that creates a haven. It is it's it's a it's a center of tourism or even a pilgrimage in some cases, right? Yes, exactly. Excellent. I, I just wanted to clarify one thing. You're saying that it encompasses the entire area, but people go to the source. As Correct. It's not as if okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we've got so we've got a holy site. We've got a pilgrimage area. I'm loving this so far. Do we have any? Did, did okay. I'm going to ask this. I, I have a uh, good segue if that's what you're asking. I was going to say, yeah. Segues. <laughs> okay. You, yeah. Chris, famous for his segues. Absolutely correct. Do you have the reason or the element or something along those lines that this is a, a or the reason that this is a haven, Chris? No, but I was going to build upon, <laughs> I was going to build upon the divine nature in, in such a way. Then by all means, what is your tenet? My tenant was going to be that there are a very slight amount of people who can live in the inhospitable area, but they are looked down upon as being less than or say whatever changed in them that allows them to adapt and live in the uh, outside the oasis. People kind of call them just like, oh, that's because you've been tainted by the outside. The only reason you can live out Mm. there is because your lungs can handle the toxic area. So you're toxic in yourself and we don't really like that you come into the Oasis. Okay. So is that kind of like the old, uh, was it Kevin Costner Waterworld with the people that could breathe water or the troglodytes from the uh, time machine? I was even thinking like the Bedouin, like if we're talking about like desert areas and stuff like that where they're more nomadic. Yeah, my idea was more uh, centered from the idea of the, uh, I think they were called the Ash Walkers or Dust Walkers in Morrowind. Oh, okay, nice. Ashlanders? Mm. Ashlanders, thank you. All right. So now, so here's here's the question I have. Is it going to be that the people outside are viewed as lesser or that the people on the inside are viewed as privileged? Or both? I like uh, both. Yeah. I think both yeah. I think both lends to more interesting plot hooks, more interesting cultural ideas as well. And so I think that- so the people from the so the people from the outside aspire to be able to go inside and whereas hide the, their adaptation. Yeah. Okay. I would even go so far as to say there's probably like clades or like different gr- groups that the closer you get to the center, the more fanatical and the more likely you are to want to join the center is in some oh, way. I love that. Mm. I was going to ask if any of you guys ever played the um, old Fallout's Fallout 2 in particular. Yes. Chris um, is a huge fan. I know that much. So you had the, you know, in Fallout 2, you had Vault City, which, you know, they mm-hmm. had found their geck and, and brought it up. And so they were all, and that's kind of how they, they looked as they looked down upon any, anybody who wasn't a vault dweller or outside the vaults, they were just less than. So the question of if the people were less than or privileged, I think would really be determined on who you asked at that point. Oh, yeah. well, uh, from, it naturally would develop that since, uh, over here is the oasis of where people come from. And then the adaptation would happen over the course of a very long period of time. This is where uh, industry and culture and everything had time to build up. And then outside, as people get pushed out, they they literally live on the fringe of society. Yeah, I like that. Now, Daniel, uh, does your tenant tell us anything about the area or how the oasis functions? Uh, yes, but it depends on how much you want me to fuck it up. Okay. <laughs> I was expecting contrarian Daniel here, so I'm glad that I, I thought ahead of time. Um, I'm going to give my tenet then, and then Daniel, you can kind of figure, you can tell us what the Oasis is looking like. So my okay. tenet is the object, in this case, this divine relic has a catastrophic side effect that most people are unaware of. Ooh. Yeah. See, I I was expecting Daniel to go in some direction that was similar to this. That was one of my two. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. I was, I was, I had, I had an inkling that Daniel was going to go this way and I'm glad that I brought it up before he did. So 
that's that's what we got now daniel tell us about the oasis itself <laughs> so here's how i'm gonna fuck it up um because the, the the one tenant that you <laughs> mentioned is what i had in mind that there's a dark side but the other tenant i was thinking about um is that the the object or the location is actually constantly on the move it's elusive or Ooh. impossible to keep in one location so i don't know whether that means the entire um place that they congregate around moves or the object itself no that's actually really cool i like that, that so it'd be yeah like a nomadic camp around it yeah maybe whichever whatever makes sense but the idea is that the holy thing is always changing its location no that's super cool i like that idea a lot um kind of like kind of like a wandering island maybe yeah i was i was thinking island or, or for some reason i had this idea of just like a monster with something strapped on its back it's turtles all the way down yeah yeah Uh, i was hoping for a lion turtle wait if you make it moving the object is not just uh an object it it is the walking god kind of thing like they worship also the being that is the object so so actually that works really well because the people can revere the creature not knowing that there is a divine relic that is causing the actual, uh, you know, purification or whatever the fuck you want to call it. You know, like they think it's the, the, the monster, but in reality, it's this ancient technology that's strapped onto the monster. So I would ask a couple questions. Would it be a monster that moves, which is a great idea, or would it teleport from time to time? And if it was a monster that moves, is it actually a biological creature or is it mechanical? Is it still tech? See, now we got now we got some questions that we can really ask because um, I think there's something um, tactically interesting from a narrative point of view if it's physically moving rather than teleporting. I, um, I, I am with that as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm now thinking that we can do um, I, because I love the idea of having uh, expedition to barrier peaks that is just so happened to be on the back of a monster. So there's essentially a crashed crashed spaceship. But (laughs) this thing is, this kaiju thing is so massive that it just so happens to have that be part of its biology now in some way. So instead of the city built on the Tarrasque, it is literally built on the Tarrasque? Oh yeah, okay. Or or it's 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 almost like a hermit crab that just so happened to use a retrofitted spaceship and now it's walking around in some way. <gasps> that is epic. That's I awesome. It. I love is that. It, yes. Is it headed someplace that would imperil their society since Robbie said um it it, it causes a it, it basically will have a, a serious problem. <laughs> it's very dangerous in some way. Potentially, but I, I left the the catastrophic side effect vague enough to where we can argue and kind of think of something really interesting that can go along with that. It doesn't necessarily have to be that the monster is the threat, but we oh, can okay. have it be something like, uh, Ooh, does it, someone else want the, want the monster that's outside the society? Um, there was actually uh, I think it was a comic or a story that was, it had a being that had a city on its back. And the thing that they were terrified is just like, Hey, we don't know if it was Discworld. They didn't know if it was male or female. And they're like, what if a mate comes along? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. That, so, that would be really interesting, yeah. Well, well, we have this general concept, but we don't have the idea of what what about it creates a safe haven. So what is what creates a safe haven in an otherwise inhospitable land? Let's let's nail that down because we haven't really talked about that aspect yet. Well, I was I was thinking about it kind of like uh, a terraforming device of some oh, sort. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so maybe maybe it was one of those things where uh, the 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 terraforming device maybe they got the calculations wrong and it just wasn't powerful enough to actually terraform the entire planet, or maybe it they got uh, whenever they planted whenever they planted it it was you know they didn't realize that they were planting it on a creature. And so the, the terraforming devices interaction with the biology of the creature has altered its function somehow. All right. Has anyone seen the best Miyazaki movie, which is princess Mononoke because you can have the God in that where, where it walks, you know, life kind of springs up. 
You can call this thing the spring walker and have vegetation and everything rise within its wake. That's that what thing? I was thinking too. <laughs> yes. All right, Daniel. See, this is why we yeah. host a podcast together. Exactly. Because if it's if it's like a terraformed, like you're saying, if it's like some fragmented terraforming technology left on this creature and the, the thing's still functioning and it's moving, now you're leaving this like pathway of greenery that may be what they see as a safe haven and possibly even civilizations that have sprung up in its wake. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's moving, it would be hard to set up a city with something moving constantly, mm-hmm. particularly when you're dealing with, like, agriculture. But then, like, if the the planet's just, like, blooming right behind it as this thing moves, obviously it's going to move incredibly slow. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, something became extremely verdant as it passed by. So maybe people try to set up something or try to predict where it's going to go and try to set up things in front of it so it passes through through their area so they can maximize the time that they're going to have of this of this growth or or you know bounty as it were is it a living continent or a living tectonic plate i like plate more than continent yeah yeah i mean when it goes into the ocean that'd be interesting too yeah it would be absolutely and not only that but there's now a like a political jockeying where you know can you sway the creature to go in one direction is that possible can you lure it in a certain way i also like the idea of where uh wherever it started uh the pilgrimage starts there and then it goes to where it is so like many points of journey of people like trying to head it off of where it's going to be yeah i like that that that's actually a a very reasonable so you're following the path of this thing as part of your pilgrimage journey. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Oh, I would wow. I would almost see it as being a a circuit. Like it it moves seasonally, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it so it, it follows a defined path, and that defined path is the safe area. Is it's a, a safe haven. I yeah, like it's, that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a migration. Yeah. And so you can you can somewhat rely upon it making it back to a certain place after a certain amount of time. And so the the people who live here, they have based their entire calendar on the passage of this creature. So it'd be like the Nile flooding. And that's really good too, because if this thing walks a circuit or a set path, then maybe like in the center, there's a constant overlap. And there you could have, like I said, some permanent, some permanence involved or some agriculture or something like that, where there's always a constant at least some minor influence of this creature or device. That might, that might be, that might be the center where these elites live is, is in the center of this path because yes, it's not as dramatic a, a vibrant, you know, ecology there, but it's steady. It's, it's constant. It Mm -hmm. always is as it is because it's equidistant from the creature at any given time. It could also be that there is something that brings this creature to the place and has it, maybe this is the the part in the journey where it stops to rest and drink water and, and, and you know, kind of, it, it, it leaves a longer lasting impact on that area more so than the other stops in its migration. I can okay. see that too. Yeah, that works really well. And then that mm-hmm. would get back into your political jockeying of how to either attract it or dissuade it or guide it in some way. Somehow, if you could get it to stop at a certain region versus another region for some reason. So people are gathering like tribute or leaving gifts to maybe let it sit and graze or slow down or something like that. Mm-hmm. I would almost go the other way, though. I would almost see this as the jockeying is for who controls the area that the creature is about to go into. Both yeah, contro- controlling the territory around the creature rather than the creature itself. Mm-hmm. In the way that you guys are describing its quote-unquote migratory patterns, it almost makes me think, and also because it's revered and it's 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 unpredictable in a way that this culture wants to control it, it almost makes you think that this, this probably isn't actually alive or a creature. It might actually be the technology itself. Like, I could imagine almost um, if this was, was a failed experiment or a failed technology from some other civilization to terraform this planet, which we were suggesting before, it could have been the technology is repeating a pattern of terraforming, but failing to achieve that. So that could be one interpretation, maybe from an outsider's point of view, if not that it's an actual living thing. 
So it's like that Roomba that keeps bumping the wall and just keeps, keeps going back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I have never played it, but uh, Horizon Zero Dawn is a wonderful game. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's on my to do, but um, I believe at some point uh, animals also got an integrated with like the technology itself. So could you have it that? this giant beast is not just integrated with it, but it's the reason it has its immortality is because it's infused and combined with the technology to such an extent that there is a question if it's biological or technological. I, th- I think that's probably the best of both worlds. I think yeah, I like that. I, I think that the object itself has probably integrated itself into its biology at this point. And- it was, it was a terraforming machine that just took use of the raw materials it could find nearby. Oh, that's horrifying. And yeah, also I like that. Probably what we're going with, yeah. yeah it could have right. been like a, a beneficial virus that's kind of not quite done what it's supposed to. Rob had mentioned like it being a kaiju. And I was kind of thinking like Mecha Godzilla or something like that, or like Pacific Rim. So at that point, I was kind of thinking that that blend between biological and tech anyway. We've settled all of the other tenets, but we I, I want to know what the catastrophic side effect is that most people are unaware of for this kaiju, this terraforming kaiju thing. I have a couple that, that would be feasible. Um, so if it's, if it's, you know, prompting plant growth, I think the really easy ones are radiation, either be at UV or just like maybe like alpha or beta radiation where it's a low level, but you know, it's kind of trying to stimulate growth beyond that. Maybe stimulating growth causes cancer in people. Or possibly the chemicals that are required to promote plant growth at any point um, tends to poison people over time. Maybe it's like a cumulative poison. That's Chris's culture. The, the, the people on the outside who are surviving in the wild, that's not being terraformed. Right. There's also an option that we could go here where uh, the, the vegetation is in some way um, addictive, where the reason that the outsiders are looked upon so poorly is because they are essentially looking in and being like, Oh wow, you are all addicted to this vegetation or this, this plant life or this food or something about it is drawing these people to it in a really dangerous way. Uh, Look at all them pollen junkies in there. Yeah, totally. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. I was also thinking of the Star Trek episode um, symbiosis where one group of aliens doesn't know that it's addicted. It, they, they think that they're in, infected by some disease. Oh, yeah. oh, I remember that episode. Yeah, yeah, it was a great episode. Yeah, that's like one of the good episodes from season one, from what I understand. They made like the the side effects of the drug and everything much worse over time. Just because, just like, yeah, if, if they had free reign, we would be get bulldozed by them. So. Right, because they like barely had any technology and their entire infrastructure was based around developing and selling this drug to the neighboring planet. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I remember that. Yeah, that yeah. was a great episode. Uh, I do have an idea of, uh, of a bad side effect. Go ahead. Uh, th- that we can paint towards the outsiders maybe knowing something. What if even though uh, I, I could have sworn someone said something to this effect in the Discord at some point, but what if they know that the power source is finite and or dying. And they're like, this is an illusion. This isn't a solution. Mm. We need to learn how to survive outside of the terraformed area. Oh, nice. Yeah. So a drive for self-sufficiency. I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we can probably combine all three ideas as well, Mm. where we can probably make it so that the outsiders are survivalists who see the decadence and the uh, addiction that's inflicting those that are closer to it. And also maybe they understand that this thing can't last. It's dying out. I mean, maybe the machine is like finally eroding or, or consuming the last biological components. And when it does, that's when something really awful happens. That's when it starts consuming people. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's kind of become self-aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When it, it no longer cares about the biological on its planet, it starts optimizing optimizing for itself. Yeah, I like that. Okay. And, and not only that, but it probably has, I mean, if we're going with like the, the severe machine route, I imagine that it has ge- like genetic information that it's been gathering as it's been walking back and forth forever. You know, it's 
because there are humans or, or whatever humanoids that are in the way that have, I'm sure have been trampled and crushed and killed by this thing and also already consumed. I'm sure that's happened once or twice. Actually, I could even see it as some cultures using it as an execution method or a methodology of like martyrdom in some way. That I would terrifying, I would, but I could see that too. I would almost see it because it is an object of almost divine reverence. That's part of their funeral practices. Mm. They is they give the body they give over the bodies to the creature. Wow. Put it in its wake. No, put it in its uh put it in its path so that it will consume the bodies to to progress the development of the planet. Now we're getting to some like Dune type things, you know, where we're extracting (laughs) water from people for the rest of the siege. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your water, Friedman. I like that a lot. That's a great idea. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so we've really got things come together here. This is really cool. Um, this took let's a see. dark turn real fast too. I like it. Welcome to our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you guys never do the bright and sunny. <laughs> okay. The one time we tried to do bright and sunny with our land of a thousand flavors, Chris tried to mess it up with like these horrible cultists and zombies and i'm like chris this is the one series that didn't go dark for christ's sake salt wraiths yeah 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 it was a salt race they also scraped the taste buds off their tongue if you remember self-flagellation flagellation yeah exactly so (sighs) the question i would bring up next and i hope i'm not jumping on stomping on anybody's toes we talked about an inhospitable land, and I think we, we batted this around in the Discord once or twice, but what makes the land otherwise inhospitable? Is it barren? Is it a desert? Is it Arctic? Is it just rocky flats? I mean, what are we looking at out on the outside? Obviously, I can support some small amount of life because you do have your outsiders. I kind of mm-hmm. want this to be a frozen planet. See, I, I had the opposite direction. I wanted it to be a desert of some kind. Because I, I was I thinking it should idea. be the opposite of that, which was like it's over fertile, and so the terraforming project was to control the wild. How does that work? So, like, I'm thinking because you typically, when you have a post-apocalyptic landscape, you would think of one of one of two things: either it's some crazy extreme, or it's the absence of something, right? But what if it's like overabundance of something? So, like, the the world is so so overpopulated by some kind of flora that's dangerous like think kudzu but like times a million and so it's impossible to actually settle or colonize or live in it unless you actually control the flora which would then lend to the concept of what this machine is trying to do which is creating a more manageable path through the wilds so like i know this is rpg just came out too that's that's like um i forget what it is but it's like instead of an ocean it's an ocean of like plant life is that the one that has the chainsaw ships? Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. So so tying in with, with some historical reference, because I, I'm a bit of a history and science geek, um, one of the first major die-outs in Earth's history was kind of the same thing what you guys were talking about, was there were so many plants producing so much um, oxygen, and there was yeah. not enough oxygen-consuming creatures that fire was an incredible, credible risk. I think uh, the oxygen was like 24, 25% of the Earth's atmosphere. So oh, like wow. thinking about a spark caused these huge conflagra- conflagrations. So maybe if we were going that route, that would be something and fire would be a huge risk for these people as well. Well, I'm down with that. Yeah, I like that. That sounds that sounds fun. That's that's interesting. That's something that you don't hear very often. So I'm I'm all for that. Okay, yeah, I'm down for that too. Let's do it. Uh, so this thing essentially burns everything in its path is what I mean? No, it's basically like a giant, it's a giant, like Roomba lawnmower. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a lawnmower set to the three setting as opposed to the two or the four setting. As this thing passed, maybe it, it clears out enough undergrowth. Again, talking about, you know, the need for agriculture and a farm. Maybe like it uh, clears out a lot of brush or undergrowth, so you could temporarily build something or set down some some farms instead of having like giant thick woody plants or a bunch of brambles and stuff. It actually like yeah. clears the land out. Where again, if you tried to burn it out, you know, do a back burning like the Aboriginals or anything like that, just the whole place would burn down. Uh, the the other thing to to go back to how people can't really live out there, uh, not just from the sense of being able to not really farm very well. What if it was also like a disease or a reaction of like all of the stuff that lives out there, just the abundance of life now 
that, so you're looking at like a, a malaria situation yeah essentially. Yeah, yeah that makes sense so i want i want to to propose something um i'm a huge fan of the mass effect video game series and so maybe taking something from there it's a different structured protein in those plants so it we would be dextro versus levo proteins and so humans going out or these humanoids going out into there would have an allergic reaction a violent allergic reaction to contact or consumption of these proteins oh that's cool that's that's really cool yeah that could lead to why the plants on the inside were addictive as well because the change of those proteins would obviously change how they digest and break down oh Look at this all coming together. I'm fucking like loving it. this. Yeah. We're science in it. That's what's happening. I, I feel like the people following this thing actually just have like mech suits that are nothing but like uh, air filters and uh, dehumidifiers. And they're like, I'm going into the waste. <laughs> I can also see like really deadly like living plants from a fantasy perspective. You know, like mm-hmm. they're the kind of plants you don't actually want to physically encounter because they will rip you apart. <laughs> okay. So like the, like the Venus man trap and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. They're like like partially it. mobile. Or also the movie Jumanji because yes. you know, I got I got to bring up a terrible nineties movie during a podcast. It's contractually obligated. Me, so yeah. if there's a Venus man trap, are there giant pipes these things sit in? Obviously. Okay. I just had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> So we're just a planet full of shambling mounds. Is that what we're saying? I yeah. love shambling oh. mounds. I love I love vegetation as and assassin vines. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. Or, it's or all you of could them. do um, the yellow musk creeper. You could get all of the cool D and D plant monsters in one like overgrown location. I'm incredibly happy with that. So yeah. You know who would love this thing? A giant black dragon. The green dragons. Yeah, green, green dragons, dragons are the ones yeah. that live in forests. Oh, okay. Yeah, black dragons are the swamp dwellers. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm thinking, think yeah, because these plants, I'm thinking kind of swampy, but yeah, the, either one would work. But both of those mm. would be fun. Not this case, but definitely fun. You get that more around the equator of the planet. Yeah. Well, well, actually, <laughs> why not? Hmm. This this giant monster that we're talking about, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Tarrasque, but yeah, could it not be an ancient worm? Yeah, I was thinking, that, or, or like a wingless ancient worm of some kind Ooh, is what I, like I was that. thinking. That's weird. Um, or if we're going D&D specific, we could even go with um, a Bahir. Um, okay. The, it's one of those like eight-legged, <clears throat> like lightning-spitting dragons that don't have any wings. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Now, now if, we, if we wanted to play into the mechanical aspect of it, you know, because if if we're going with D, we have all of the planes all of the various planes of existence that we can play with and we could totally grab some sentient constructs from the lawful plane of mechanis mm-hmm. into this okay oh okay so so this is this planet this society is essentially a planet that's been taken over by a chaotic plant species Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, and yes. Then, and then, and then, there's this giant construct sent from Mechanus to clear it out because it has to establish balance. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. exactly. That's right. beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Do either of you uh, read SCP? No, I don't. Uh, since I don't so. recognize the the thing, uh, probably not. Secure, contain, protect. No. No. Oh, uh, in it they have two gods that are kind of fighting each other. One is like Mega Knight and the other is Catharsis? Nice. No, McCain or something. Okay. But anyhow, it's machine god versus animal god. Oh. I mean, that that sounds kind of similar to what we're dealing with here as well. So I think that works. Um, So, okay. I think that we're at a solid point where we can probably uh, do a little mini world building jam and come up with the anchor that we're going to be rolling into for your next podcast. How's that sound? That sounds like a great idea to me. All right. All right. So we're going to be doing a little mini world building jam. That's going to help us create an anchor for the next plot or, or, or actually just an anchor for this world in general. We already have the monster, but if we can get something else or even another monster that plays another significant role, that'd be really interesting. So what we're going to be rolling is 
some dice, obviously, but those dice will tell us what the subject of the anchor is going to be, whether it be an item, a monster, a place, an historical figure, an event, or a cataclysm. So we're going to roll some dice and see what that is. Gentlemen, we have another monster that we're going to be uh, rolling with here. And we have a theme that we've got, whether it be between tragedy, sacrifice, love, metamorphosis, pride and honor, madness and the unspeakable, triumph and hope, and treachery and revenge. So the theme for this monster is going to be triumph and hope. So we've got, okay, this is actually really interesting now because we've got a monster that is, is it opposing this other monster or is it a part of the ecosystem in some way as the guests you have the floor to start us off with so ian and james take it away i'm tempted right off the bat particularly since we have triumph and hope it's opposing the monster because we have said while this thing is here to terraform the planet we have made it very clear that this is a failed creation very true. Plus, we have the outsiders. So this this uh, this monster could be the patron god of the outsiders if we wanted it to be. Also true. I would, you know, I would almost want it to be kind of like, since since this is going to be a Dungeons and Dragons setting, almost want it to be like an avatar of a nature god, maybe. Ooh. So, something that gives triumph and hope to those who aren't under the thrall of this giant mechanical beast? Potentially, well, yeah. Like, I know Ian and I in our, in our current podcast, are, we've been dealing with some planes, so we just dealt with a bunch of fey, which would really, hey, really right. be a lot of fun to throw in this right now. Get some arch fey in there, because they're going to be, particularly the summer court, they're going to be loving all this growth anyway. Um, so we could throw them in there trying to do that uh, again, an arch druid of some sort as well. If you don't want to go the fey route again, trying to get that this is a machine, therefore it's unnatural and it's going to fail versus a druid. That's about natural growth and natural, you know, sustainability um, creating or trying to, to summon uh, obviously another monster to, to go against this. Um, and if it just happens to be, cause you, since you mentioned Kaiju, a giant gorilla, we do have Godzilla versus <laughs> King Kong coming up. Just putting that out in the universe. <laughs> okay. All right. God damn, that's hard not to take. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, and another thing, um, because we've gone this whole time not stopping to ask ourselves, was there sentient life here before the terraforming initiation? That is a great question. Because if there was, then this triumph and hope is the hope that these native sentient species have of driving these invaders off of their planet, out of their world. I like that a lot. Yeah. Again, we can go back with some of those plant monsters. Maybe those plant monsters are sentient. It's myconids. Yes. Oh my God! Circle of the mushroom druids, please. Circle of the mushroom druids yes. everywhere. The circle of spores, arch druid. See, I I always preferred uh, like veggie pygmies or even the leshies. Like, <laughs> yeah, the veggie pygmies are cool. Actually, one of my favorite. If we could go back, I I do want to point out one of my favorite modules of all time is the 3.0 Sunless Citadel. Oh and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They actually, the they actually remade life. that for fifth edition. Really? They did. Yes. Oh uh, well, rightfully so. But also, it's... that's amazing. Um, trying to remember which module it's in. I I'm wanting to say it's in uh, one of the Waterdeep ones. It's one of the earlier on ones that ends up leading you into Waterdeep. So the, the, the reason I bring up the Sunless Citadel is because it has twig blights, which are essentially just like twisted little like vegetable humans. I love, are, I love yeah. running blights. Yeah. I love twig, running blights. They're, they're amazing. And also they're, they're born from like the tree of a dead vampire, which I also think maybe we do, we don't have to necessarily go summer court. Why not go winter court and make it really fucked up and evil? 
And this triumph and hope doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, for the benefit, but we can make it, you know, a little bit more morally gray. So it's not so clear as to who's good and who's bad here. Absolutely. Like because, because might makes right. according to the winter court. That's right. Exactly. And yeah. I like that if we have, if we go and we have like a circle of druids and a bunch of, you know, plant life that, that was here originally, um, they were looking to make a deal with anything and anyone who was able to help. And, and maybe winter stepped up first or, or winter offered faster and more substantial help. Yeah. I, I would imagine that the, uh, the summer court, they're like, we're going to trick this mechanical thing or, you know, like maybe we'll try some illusion magic. And then when that just utterly failed, they had to turn to the winter court and they're like, all right, what you got? Get, it. <laughs> get me some red caps. Get me what you got to, to stop this thing. You nice. know? So our outsiders, are our outsiders going to be largely the same as the people that are following and revering this, this mobile tech and then the, the primitive or the, not the primitive, but the, I guess you'd call them the Aboriginal peoples. They were there first are further removed or are the outsiders mixed with them? So you'd kind of have like, maybe like a half elf type thing, a half native, um, whatever, or how would you, how would you balance that? Or are they said, are the outsiders fully people that were unfamiliar with it? I'm not phrasing that exactly right. (laughs) So it seems like there's three options and I like to think that there's the native, uh, uh, the ones that is kind of like the invasive ones and then a hybrid of the two. I like that. That's what I was thinking as well. I would, yeah. I would almost, I would almost see your hybrid as being invaders who have gone native mm. Re- rather than actually being biologically changed. Okay. I can like see they're a combination doing something of both different. of those. So maybe there's four, maybe there's, you have the two diametrically opposed and then one that's switched on both sides. And then that makes up the creamy middle gray area that we're talking about here. I like it. Yeah. That, that seems mm-hmm. to fit. Mm-hmm. So have they, is there an intermixing with the biology or is it purely philosophical mixing? I prefer this. Now this is a preference on my end, but when it comes to uh, fantasy races, I'm always one to have the philosophical matter more than the biological. I could see it being a combination of like being able to say, go out into the woods and suffer a bit in it for a long period of time might adapt you more. Whereas the people who keep returning to the city, they never get the natural antibodies or get used to it. That's actually not a bad idea either. Yeah. It's, it's more of a cultural assimilation than a biological assimilation. Yes. 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 And I think that we can also speak to the um, the uh, the addictive quality of this thing and, and what uh, what surrounds that in, in that regard, if that makes sense. Well, it might not it might not be an actual addiction. It might be withdrawal because they're leaving ah, this toxic area. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've got this anchor point. We've got a conflict that we've set up. And now, gentlemen, I think we're here and we're ready for the twist. Um, now, our twists are provided by our patrons and others in general. So thank you to them. And we're going to roll this twist and see how it goes because, oh boy, this is already grounded in D&D. So I'm hoping that we get something that makes everything really weird. So let's see. Aliens did it. This has all happened before, is our <laughs> twist. And for that, I know that we've already got a million ideas and everything like that. But for that, we're actually going to kick it over to the Under Common Taste podcast, where we'll finish this whole exploration out. And sound good? Sounds great. All right. So for everyone who might not know where that is, where can we find the Under Common Taste podcast? Uh, our podcast is available on most uh, streaming services uh, under common taste. Um, we are on Facebook and Instagram at under common taste. We're on Twitter at UCT homebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing uh, I've been doing role play prompts uh, six days a week 
uh, I got a Shakespearean insult page a day calendar for Christmas <laughs> and, uh, as an incentive to myself to actually use my page a day calendar, I've been posting the insult of the day and then an inspired RP prompt off of that. So I get Saturday, Sundays on the same page. So you get six a week. Um, but that's, that's what I've been doing. And, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed doing it so far. It's, it's given me a chance to actually get some, uh, get some creative juices going since I don't have a game running right now because there's a pandemic on. Yeah. Yeah. That you, everyone, everyone I'm sure can relate to that in some way because a lot of games are stopped right now because of COVID. Um, but we're not going to end this on a bummer. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> so what you can do, you can go over to their podcast these episodes should be coming out around the same time, if not the same day, then pretty damn close to it. And check out the rest of this world building jam on their podcast. And that will wrap it up for this episode of World Build With Us. Thank you so much to Ian and James for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for having us. It's it, been we've really enjoyed fun, yes. being over here. Absolutely. And remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always email us at worldbuildwithus at gmail.com or you can shoot us a tweet over at Let's World Build on Twitter. You can join our Discord and become part of our community. Or if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always give us money on Patreon. Links for all of that and the Undercommon Taste podcast link will be in the description as well. So remember that we love you very much and we're going to get through this together. Until next week. Thank you.